Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technologies webcast. Uh, we are here today for the last week in Texas with Michael Smith. Uh, as I always say, if Michael doesn't talk about it, it's <laughs> probably not important. So with that in mind, we're going to cover a couple of weeks because uh, Michael has been able to do something that many lawyers are not able to do, and that's take vacation. <laughs> so we're going to cover the last couple weeks of, uh, actually the last three weeks of case law. And it actually, it's wonderful because it provides us some comparison between different cases on the same issue with different results and lets us look at why those results are different. So with all that, Michael, thank you for joining us once again. Well, thank you for having me, Wayne. And you're absolutely right. Um, when you have a little bit longer span, you can start collecting cases and seeing where they're different and where they're the same. And uh, I actually, that's the reason I wanted to start with the Western District of Texas this week, because we've got actually two orders granting motions for stays at, uh, from Judge Yackel uh, in Austin. We've got the Netlist net case, and then more recently, the Ravgen case. And in both of those cases, the defendant asked for a stay based on uh, IPRs and or re-exams that had been filed. And uh, in both of the cases, the plaintiff said that this is a competitor case. And in both cases, Judge Yackel denied, uh, didn't side with the plaintiff and granted the motion to stay and pointed out, you didn't ask for any injunctive relief. And I know you're a competitor, but uh, we'll all be better off if we wait until after this goes through the uh, patent office again. Now, there's an interesting part about that second case, Ravjin. The court mentions that uh, there. I have not yet had, I've done claim construction, but I haven't scheduled a trial setting yet uh, since the ruling following the transfer of the case to Austin. So this is one of those numerous cases that was filed in Waco and then was transferred to Austin, ended up on Judge Yackel's docket. So you have maybe a different result than you would have had if Judge Albright had been looking at that motion to stay, uh, if the case had stayed in Waco. So, so Michael, I won't, don't want to push too far on this, but it seems like a radically re different result than might have expected in either in the Eastern District of Texas or in, in Waco. It, when you read these, it seems like Judge Yackel is just really prone to uh, staying these cases. That that certainly seems to be what we're seeing. I have seen a ruling like that from Judge Albright, but there were specific facts that supported that. The case had not really gone anywhere. These cases were after the claim construction ruling. It was further down the road. Uh, so it, it just tells you that different judges have very different approaches to whether a case should presumptively be stayed because something is going on at the patent office. Well, the Netlist case actually caught my attention for because Judge Yackel seemed to requ require filing an injunction motion to justify a stay. And there are dozens of reasons for not filing a, a preliminary injunction, including the bond, including the fact that they're rarely granted, they're wildly expensive. Uh, is that going to now be a, a, almost a mandatory part of Austin practice? I know, well, I know from that coming up in a Marshall case I was involved in that if I want to look for an injunction at the end of the case, I need to ask for an injunction early on, even though, as you say, uh, as Judge Ward said, the first time I saw him whenever I asked for a hearing on a preliminary injunction, his, his response was, well, you know, the sun might come up in the West. That's kind of about how likely it is that, that I could grant this. 
but it may be what you have to do in order to make your record as to why this case, why it's especially important that this case go forward and not wait for uh, an IPR. Well, we we look on uh, as we move forward. We actually see that we have a, a formal um, proceeding for our new judge. We do. Uh, Magistrate Judge Derek Gilliland, uh, who has joined uh, Judge Albright in Waco, was uh, uh, sworn in formally at the Baylor football stadium in Waco, of course. That's where we go for these things. Uh, and it was a very, very nice ceremony, very interesting. Judge Albright and Judge Gilliland talked about their experience working together in a patent case in Washington State. I believe it was a number of years ago and, and kind of went into their background. So that's useful to know how familiar they are with each other. Um, and uh, that was also where we found out that Judge, Al Judge Albright's dog's name is Mandamus. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> uh, that'll show up in another Mandamus petition at some point in time, won't it? <laughs> well, he said that's why he hired Judge Gilliland is because Judge Gilliland's wife is a uh, a veterinarian, and that way, Mandamus gets twenty-four-seven treatment. Nice. Um, well, we also have a, a really kind of a, a follow-on case. This has been a constant—I guess maybe a constant drip of cases on this alternative service in uh, in the Western District. So, what are we really learning, and kind of what does somebody need to look at now for? alternative service and especially Judge Albright's court? Well, I, I think Judge Albright has been very clear what's required for alternative service. I just posted on another case on this yesterday, this time out of Marshall. You have to try to serve someone in order to come in and get alternative service. But this case was about something a little different. This is where a defendant comes in, doesn't really contest the alternative service. And then when they, they spend all their time saying, well, the case ought to be dismissed. Then when they lose the alternative service, they went and filed a 33 page mandamus petition with the federal circuit saying all the reasons that the alternative service was wrong when they barely touched it in front of him. And Judge Albright said, okay, I'm vacating my prior order authorizing service and I'm ordering you to file a replacement brief that makes all the arguments in front of me that you're now making in front of the federal circuit. Um, that's not, I, I don't think that's a good practice. I mean, make your best arguments in front of the judge and then take those arguments to the appellate, to the appellate court. Don't, in fact, my, my uh, image for this post was a pile of sandbags. Well, and quite frankly, the federal circuit could have just looked at that and said, no, none of these were presented below, done. I mean, it could have ended right there. So there's no good reason to yeah, try to it, sandbag the, the, it the very judge. well. It very well could have. I mean, if you want to destroy your your uh, credibility with a district judge, this is this is one way to do it. But but I think it really obviously uh, was not well taken by the district court that a party did three pages of briefing in front of him, and then they go file a mandamus with a bunch of stuff and cases that uh, that they had not raised before him. I, I just uh, if you're trying to avoid that particular relief. If I'm willing to fight something on mandamus, it's only going to be after I've taken my absolute best shot in front of the district judge. I, I'm with you on the destruction of credibility. My guess is there were some unkind words spoken in chambers about that three to 33 page uh, ratio. Yeah. So, yeah. well, one of my uh, least favorite motions and maybe one of the seemingly most wasteful um, court costs. Uh, in patent cases, 
where people spend 50,000 fighting over 10,000. Exactly. I, I, I've had, unfortunately, I seem to be the only lawyer still standing after we lose a case and I have to go fight the court cost stuff. So I've run into this a few times. And one thing that I've learned is different judges have different approaches on this. Well, since Judge Albright's cases just started getting to trial a little over a year ago, and then they had to go through the federal circuit in this case, this was a Roku case where the defendant got a verdict, took it to the federal circuit, uh, the uh, verdict was upheld. So now we're talking about court costs. Well, here are the interesting things that Judge Albright does on court costs. First of all, he talks about the reasons why a court might deny court costs. That's something a lot of judges don't talk about. They say, here's what the, you're a prevailing party, here's what the statute allows. He lays out the different arguments that can be made for no court costs at all. He didn't find that here, but that's something that I would definitely look at if I were trying to get out of it. Now, as far as the actual costs, he does something different at all three steps. Not saying it's not within his discretion, but he does something different than other judges I've seen. First of all, he doesn't award costs for video depositions of witnesses who did not testify uh, by video at trial. So if you video a witness and then present them live at trial, you don't get costs of video. Well, that's interesting. Uh, another is he'll give you trial graphics and technician costs, but don't come in and ask for a quarter of a million dollars. He cut that to a little over 100000 And then finally, on document reproduction charges, he said there's a generally accepted rule in the Western District that you ought to get, prevailing party gets half of their document reproduction costs through the whole case. Well, I don't, I, the impression I got was that the party here only asked for part of the costs, so he only ended up giving up, giving them half of what they asked for. So now I know when I've got that issue come up, this is how this judge uh, wants to rule on things. Don't go in asking for more than this, don't ask for this, and you're entitled to this, but you're not going to get this. That's a, a very helpful uh, in the rare situations that you actually get to a court cost fight. Well, and the opinions actually rather lengthy for the kind of seemingly trivial nature of, of what was going on here. So it seems like like the judge was really trying to help people in the future avoid these fights and that, save that, them on well, and, and I can and I can give a uh, an anecdote on that. I had a hearing with Judge Albright two days ago, and he makes a ruling, and he makes a point of saying, "I'm going to get an order out on this because he as he told us this is the sort of holding that that people might be interested in in other cases." So he identified, "Oh yeah, there's something about this that I want to tell people. Here's how I see it." so that they know whether to ask or not ask for certain relief in the future. So that's very helpful. I've been using cases he's put out in the last three weeks a lot in the last couple of days because issues have come up and I've said, okay, this is where Judge Albright's told us he is on this and on this, and that helps us avoid those expensive fights, uh, knowing which way he's gonna go on these procedural issues. Okay, for our next case, Michael, I was actually hoping we'd get some some juicy rumors on what happened here. This Fintive Apple case, uh, emergency motion, something pulled off trial calendar. What, what's going on here? Well, it, it, it'll all come out tomorrow. Judge Albright set the hearing on the motion for tomorrow. But what happened was, as you know, in the Eastern District, the judges will set several cases, one behind the other. And then the first one settles, the second one goes. Well, the first thing we heard about this case was when the Fintiv v. Apple trial was continued after a sealed emergency motion was filed, and then WSOU versus Microsoft was slotted in behind it. 
And it wasn't until after the redacted version of the motion came out. And what happened was the plaintiff claimed that it just learned right before trial of information that Apple had not disclosed, having to do with certain witnesses and certain information regarding some issues. So they said, rather than going forward with trial, we want to reopen discovery. We want the trial continued so we can find out about this. Now, they asked for sanctions, but they only asked for the money involved in raising this issue on the eve of trial and having to bring the trial team back twice because they were already getting set up and now they were going to have to do it again. So that's all we really know about it at this point. But as I said, the hearing has been set for tomorrow. So we'll find out whether Judge Albright believes this was information that should have been disclosed or earlier or whether it was permissible or it wasn't relevant for, for whatever reason. But it did raise a lot of eyebrows because a case that was just about to go got pulled off the trial calendar. Well, and pulled off the trial calendar by the plaintiff, by the patent owner. That's somebody thinks they've got something pretty important there. Well, and and it's 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 actually not uncommon at all for Judge Albright to pull a case off the trial calendar. But in every other situation I'm aware of, that's an indication that he's about to grant summary judgment. So in this case, that was a little that was a little different. We knew it came off but it wasn't for the usual reason. It was as a result of this motion. You could kind of tell from the judge's order what the issue was, but you didn't know the specifics until the uh, redacted motion came out. Well, the, the next case, um, the, the Caddo Systems verdict, um, gives me the feeling that the patent owner won, but maybe wishes they uh, had been pulled <laughs> off trial calendar too. Yeah, I think they mm -hmm. wanted a lot more than $235,000 but uh, the jury did find that all the asserted claims were infringed and that the defendant's website wasn't covered by a license the plaintiff had previously given to Microsoft. But yeah, the damages were very low on that. And what was interesting was, I thought, the jury was asked, is this a lump sum including future damages or a lump sum that doesn't include future damages? And they said it, it includes. This is everything. So, uh, uh, I mean, that's... Yeah, $235,000 is not a lot in patent case, patent terms. Well, this is the one of those cases where the um, court costs could actually double the total award. Yep. Yep. So yep. That's, that's not exactly what you, you want to be thinking about yep. going in. Well, the next case is, is one of my favorites for, for this period, and that is how to count interrogatories. So many judges never touch this and let parties fight over it. It seems that Judge Albright was willing to dig into this in incredible, maybe nauseating detail and <laughs> teaches all an important lesson about what to do and not to do going forward. Uh, this is not exactly how you expect a federal judge to be required to spend their time, but it's very useful going forward. Well, and 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 this is this is one of my cases. So I can tell you, we didn't just inconvenience one judge, we inconvenienced two judges. We had a hearing in front of Judge Gilliland where he counted them and came up with something and said, here's how this works, and gave us something. And the parties then couldn't reach agreement on how to count after that. So we file another dispute. And, and then Judge Albright steps in and says, okay, I'm going to resolve that, and this one's one, this one's one, this one's five. The reason why I think that's helpful is, as you said, you rarely get a judge who gives you an order that says, okay, here's the language, here's how much this counts for. So at the end of the order, he says, okay, 
here's how I'm counting it up. And there's a, and, and he has a little spreadsheet and it ends up and says, here's the number. So now we actually knew we had one more interrogatory and we had these answers from the judge that said this, this format is one question. So we were able to ask one more question and we, and we're trying to follow his format. Well, to me, this is invaluable because if you want examples of when the judge says it counts as one and when the judge says it counts as five, you've got examples of it. I, I, that very rarely comes up in practice, as you know, and, and that was the reason why uh, I'm happy to have the order. I'm not happy that we had the dispute. Well, there was, there was one other piece. In addition to how to count, I was struck by the, the language about when to count. So right. in other words, don't answer the first 25 that you want to answer and then all of a sudden claim I'm not answering the next three that and are really scary. And that specifically came up with Judge Gilliland because the question was, okay, now we know how to count. Okay, so Judge, we just answer the first X number, right? Because they'd come in two groups. There was one group and then there was another group. And the question was, okay, now that we know how much it is, can that party, okay, now I know I've only got six left. Okay, so of the 10 that I sent in the second batch, I'll send the six I really want. And the parties raised the issue of, well, does the party sending get to pick which ones to send? Or does the party receiving get to choose which ones to, uh, to respond to? And the order gets into kind of how you play that on both sides. If you're, there, there are different ways that you can play those cards and the court recognized it because it came up in the dispute. So that is helpful as well. Well, here's to you not having to litigate that particular issue again. So. I hope. I hope. Maybe two orders will be enough. Uh, I, I hope so. But like I said, I've been in a lot of courts where that issue came up and couldn't find a single case where anybody ever counted them on the record. So The judges are amazingly patient on this. It's, it's, it's phenomenal how patient they are um, because they, they recognize, you know, we really have got to have we got a disagreement. We got to have guidance. I mean, uh, it's it's like one judge said. I, I uh, one judge, an old judge, told a new judge, "You don't get paid to be right. You get paid to rule." Well, we got rulings, and and uh, it gave us something we can work with. Well, the the next ruling that caught my attention uh, was this Bell Power venue ruling, and it really is is striking on how it treats. Uh, I guess, working from home? Right. I don't know that I have seen a case where a court said that some, that, that a, uh, a plaintiff got over the hump as far as persuading the court that you've met your burden to establish that the defendant had ratified a regular and established place of business based on work that was having done out of employees' homes. And I think Judge Albright's opinion recognizes this is an unusual holding. And he says, here's kind of what, where the law is. Here's where the benchmark is. Here's what hasn't been enough previously. Here are different facts in this case that got the, that the defendant was over the, was over the hump in this case, because not only was this work being done, but they were sending product to here. They were doing it this way. And the court found that that was enough that the defendant had ratified a regular established place of business. Very rare holding. So uh, uh, this is kind of the one that I would look to to see whether I think I can get there 
on employees working from home. As you know, that's that's a very rare holding. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens when this goes up on mandamus, as as I'm sure it will. Uh, but this is the one example where, where a court has said, yes, this is enough. So do you see this as a change in what how Judge Albright's viewing the world, no. or is this a different set of facts? No. It's a different set of facts. I, I, I've seen previous orders from him where he went through the facts and he indicated they were bumping up against it, but they didn't quite get there. And here he laid out, here's what the facts were previously. Here's what's different here. So I don't view this as anything different from Judge Albright. It's Judge Albright applying a different set of facts against the same standard. So now we have a kind of a set of cases on this particular issue that I mean, put a, shine a lot of light on this particular subject for us going forward. Right. In the uh, VOIP cases, uh, Judge Albright transferred a number of cases. He didn't transfer other cases. So what, what happened here is uh, the case against Amazon, uh, the case against Amazon was not transferred. The case against Google was transferred. And what seems to have been the difference here is something that Judge Gilliland talked about yesterday in a seminar at for Baylor's uh, LLM on litigation management. He said what he's already seeing in these venue hearings is that you gotta develop the facts. If you want to hold venue or if you wanna defeat venue, you've got to develop the facts during venue discovery and put them in front of the court. And in this case, he said it's, it's obvious uh, the, the facts before him said the Amazon employees can easily access the business records electronically, but it wasn't clear whether Google's 1800 employees in Texas had access to the relevant documents. So that wasn't developed sufficiently in venue discovery. And as a result, um, that that Google, the case against Google ended up being transferred. So now you've got some cases in Texas, some cases in California. Well, in your use of language there shouldn't be overlooked. It wasn't clear. So this is this is an absence of a factual record that led to this right. result, not a not a positive factual record. Right, right. There there was a uh, you needed to make a certain show. You just didn't get the facts in front of the court, and that's something Judge Gilliland again, as I as as he reminded us yesterday, you have to develop the facts. I can't develop the facts for you, even at a hearing. In most cases, you have to get go get those facts. Well, I wanted to, to move to the, the IGT case that's about the, the scope of discovery and this idea of bucketizing products. Uh, this, this looks really important to me in terms of how Judge Albright's going to let people lump products together and how much burden can be shifted. Uh, yes, I thought it, I'd, I read this one really carefully, trying to see if I could figure out where the court is drawing the line here. And, and basically, you run into situations sometimes in litigation where the other side gives you a shopping list of things they want to know. And sometimes that appropriate is appropriate, and sometimes it's not. And this is one where Judge Albright very clearly said, this was not appropriate. Um, there's some there's some information you can request from the defendant, but you can't just send them a, an order and say, OK, bucketize all your products, uh, get us all this information and uh, break it down by by functionality. Th that that wasn't the right way to ask for the information, and it looked like they were simply pushing their 
their obligation to develop the facts and discovery off on the defendant. So that's a good one to read when you're trying to figure out whether a particular request is going too far or not. Well, and compared to the what we're talking about before about developing your factual record, it looks like the defendant in this case did a really good job of developing the prejudice and explaining factually what they would be required to do to fulfill those discovery requests. That, that's absolutely correct. And that's something I've had judges tell me is that parties resisting discovery will talk about undue burden and the cost and the expense, but they never give them metrics. And if you give metrics, if you explain what would be involved, that helps a judge greatly when they're trying to give you an order that limits the, the harm to you. But they're used to everybody saying the sky is falling. Uh, when you give them facts showing that it actually is, um, that's that gets you over a different hump than I was talking about a minute ago. Well, this is, this is a great a great case for any accused infringer to study if they're having to identify those categories of products and where to draw that line and what kind of proof you need. It's just good, right. just really good lawyering on this one, it seemed like. Yeah, I think so. So maybe in contrast, uh, maybe not a really good lawyering, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's the amended complaint was stricken, which is never a good thing. Well, yeah, case. yeah, this was interesting because the plaintiff uh, amended their complaint within the time frame and and uh, the court struck it anyway. And what's useful here is the court said, yes, it's timely, but it fundamentally alters the nature of the case. It brings in theories that you told me weren't going to be in the case, and it's just making too much of a change this late in the game, which tells us that there might be a deadline for amending, but maybe an amendment after that is still is still going to be held to be timely. Maybe an amendment before that won't be because of the scope of it. So don't be afraid. I mean, that's it's a good go, it's a good uh, deadline to refer to and comply with, but it's not a, a absolute permission to amend and it's not an absolute permission that you can't amend. So then we, we move forward to uh, maybe another one of my least favorite fights, and that's uh, the, uh, the briefing over protective orders. And this is the, the jawbone case. Um, this one just seems wasteful. Well, it, it is. And what happened here is the plaintiff proposed essentially the court's default protective order, which Judge Albright took several years to develop. And uh, the important... Apple came in and wanted its own 30 page protective order, 13 pages versus 30 pages, totally different order. So there's two things that's useful here. Number one, Judge Albright says that default protective order reflects carefully considered compromises. And in order to reduce the frequency of disputes over language and protective orders, I track that protective order unless somebody shows good cause for deviation. Well, that's important for us to know because I might not know, is Judge Albright, I mean, is it essentially a preponderance? I can, he'll, he's, yeah, this is a starting point, but I'll change whatever, or does he really require that you show more than that? This gives me the answer to that. The other thing this says is the worst way to bring up a protective order dispute is to simply not try to reach any agreements at all and just propose a completely different format. And I candidly don't see that very often. What you generally do is, you take the judge's order and then you pick your fights and say, okay, on source code, uh, 
I, I, I want these different provisions, and here's why they're necessary. On prosecution bar, I would like this change, and here's why I think it's necessary. Whatever good arguments Apple had went out the window because they didn't even attempt to tie those to the judge's uh, form order, which already reflected an awful lot of work. Well, and I and I like this. This just seemed like a massive overreach, unnecessary by Apple. But the end result was not only they lost their own protective order, but I love the court very clearly said, "Well, and because you behave that way, I'm just adopting Jawbones yeah. completely." Yeah, and so, exactly. I, I might could, I might could have won some of those points if I had just limited it to those points. I mean, I mean, it's the court will listen to if I say, "Look, I need a different provision on source code because of this specific issue." Maybe I can get that. The court didn't even get to that because of the overreach. Well, that uh, brings us all the way to Marshall, in the Eastern District of Texas, uh, with the Miller case and an exceptional case finding denied, which tends to be bordering on another set of motions that are often wasteful. Right. right. Well, and, and what was interesting about this is this was a case where the court granted a motion to dismiss under 12C at the beginning of the case, finding that it's unpatentable subject matter. So the defendant comes in and says, okay, this is exceptional because the case was dismissed this early. And the, and the court said, no, just because I agreed with you doesn't make the case exceptional. There was a, there was a decent claim of infringement and this is a not, not enough to get you to exceptional case. It's not an unusual order it's a little unusual coming after a motion to dismiss on 101 grounds that early because we've seen the court grant exceptional case uh, in those cases as well. But this is a, a useful one to see kind of what the, what the court considers exceptional and what it doesn't. What I do think this case tells us is just because you won doesn't mean you get 285. So don't I mean, go back and tell your client, okay, yeah, we won, but unless there's something really sticking out, uh, it's really not worth the fight to try and go get fees, at least in front of a judge who sees this many cases. Well, speaking of maybe not worth the fight, uh, it seems that Gibson Guitar and Sherman is another winner that may have wished they had taken a different path. Wow. Uh, I've had complicated verdict forms to Judge Mazant, but this thing's a nightmare. It was a trademark infringement uh, case that Gibson brought against a company that was selling what it said were counterfeit guitars. And the counterclaim was, well, your trademark is, is um, generic, and therefore it ought to be uh, uh, canceled. So the jury ends up saying, yeah, they're, they're counterfeit, but it only awarded $4,000 in counterfeit damages. And it found that Gibson waited too long to pursue a lot of the claims, but it at least said, no, we're not going to cancel your trademark. It's not generic. So lots of findings going both ways in that one and, and very hard to say who won that one. Well, $4,000 in, in damages isn't going to pay many hours of attorney's fees. Yeah, the, it, it, the person who lost is the person who took that on a contingency fee. So. Uh, not that I know that anyone did, but but yeah, that would be definitely be the loser. Well, it's another case where court costs could uh, outstrip the <laughs> the liability. So. Yep, absolutely. Well, as we we keep looking uh, to the Eastern District, 
going to Judge Payne, there's an adequacy of infringement contentions case here. And it seems that Judge Payne is, is trying to provide good guidance on this. Yeah, he's he's uh, the 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 motion was a motion to strike infringement contentions. And the real claim was these don't state a claim. This is not sufficient. This this case can't go anywhere. And Judge Payne pointed out in the Eastern District, contentions are there to um, they're not to provide a forum for litigating the substantive issues. They're there to frame discovery. All you're doing is saying that the plaintiff's infringement theory is is flawed. You're not saying you're not on adequate notice of it. And he cites to the to the cases. So this is the sort of case. This will be the case that I send someone that says these infringement contingents are terrible. They're not ever going to get anywhere. My question is going to be: Do they have as much detail as we need to defend the case? If they do, don't file this motion. Well, Judge Payne gave us another interesting ruling. I think it's pronounced the Arigna versus Nissan case. Um, here, yeah. he's talking about supplementing expert disclosures. And what are we supposed to take away from this one? Well, Arigna is like armadillos. They're all over the state. They're in Waco. They're in Marshall. The cases are everywhere, it seems. But yeah, what we take away from this is the plaintiff came in and said, hey, we want to supplement our damage experts report to reflect a... Um, to reflect a uh, additional settlement that came in right after the deadline. And Judge Payne said, okay, that's a valid data point, but it's really going to open a lot of things that we have to go in. You need more discovery. And it doesn't actually change their analysis. They still come out in the same place. It's just one more data point that they consider. So on balance, I'm not going to let you add that a supplement to add that thing. You've already supplemented for other things. You don't need it here. So this gives you a good example of a court balancing the the uh, the relative merits here on whether to allow you to uh, add some things in a later report. I, I like that. It's you know piling on is not necessary. Um, if it had, if it had changed things now if it had changed things and the, and the expert said okay I had been saying a dollar a product but this tells me it's two dollars a product that would be different and at that point we might have gotten into a fight over whether that was really a a fair data point or whether it was a litigation induced settlement and and might should be excluded uh, up front on that. That's where I thought that order was gonna go, but that didn't end up being what the court focused on. He focused on, you don't really need this and it's gonna open up a lot more discovery. And so let's just leave this one out. So maybe the lesson from that is if you're gonna do a litigation settlement, do it before your expert deadline. Well, well Michael, it seems like digging through the archives, you found uh, a case back from February from Judge Mazant that actually deserves a little more attention than than sitting in a, in a dustbin. Well, it's about the quashing subpoenas and maybe some boilerplate type language that will be common for Judge Mazant. Well, and and the, the reason I, I read this because the issue came up recently, and this is the con case we're talking about. Uh, and what happened in this case was the uh, defendant sent out deposition notices and the plaintiff objected and said, no, the language is too broad. So I go and I read Judge Mazant's opinion and it's got this wonderful language up front in the boilerplate that says, here's what discovery's for, here's the standards, here's when something's relevant. 
Now, as far as topics for corporate representative depositions, here's when here's when it's too much. Here's when it's not enough. It was great language that I could then take and say, okay, let me go back and look at what I'm asking for and what I'm objecting to and align it with the guidance that the court gave the parties in this case. And, and uh, I thought it was very helpful because it tells you, if you go in front of Judge Mazant with this language, he'll say, that's too broad. You gotta cut it down from there. So this is a great little piece of boilerplate uh, to study and to understand how to draft your 30B6 notices a little more, uh, with a little more specificity, at least in this court. Well, and it's uh, the Jordan Kahn case. Um, so if you're drafting these kinds of, of documents, it's worth, worth your time to read this. I think so. Uh, but I, I love your, your qualification on that, Michael, it, at least in this court. It may not, uh, it may not right. apply elsewhere, probably doesn't. Yeah. But yeah, this this language local. may this uh, other judges may think this language is fine, uh, but other judges may not give you as much guidance on when it what's in and what's out. So at least since I have a, a lot of cases in this court, this tells me what that judge thinks. I mean, I've had three jury trials with this judge in the last year. It's kind of important to me what he thinks the standards are. I want to get to where he is on the standards uh, uh, before the other side does. So we, we have another case here that's protective order related, but done in the right way. This one's very narrow, focused on a particular issue with great arguments on both sides. And yeah. now we know how Judge Payne views uh, prosecution bars. Yeah, prosecution bars are something, of course, we, we often fight over. And in this particular case, the court looked at it and said, this isn't this isn't an unacceptable risk. Uh, we're only talking about whether something's going to be narrowed. And here's the other fact. The Plaintiff's Litigation Council has appeared for 11 prior proceedings against the same defendant and has been able to work on the re-exams on the, the post-grant proceedings. So it's really not fair to the plaintiff to make them change for this one. So again, maybe it's tied to the specific facts, but again, it, it's a good explication of what the relevant standards are when you're fighting over prosecution bar and what the court thinks about the typical arguments that get made, because this is not Judge Payne's first day at the circus when it comes to this particular clown. Well, and it's, it's great. This prosecution bar is actually a subset of prosecution bars, post-grant proceeding prosecution bars. And, and it did have that, that smell of trying to disrupt litigation counsel. Um, but it gives you a nice view that, that even in a straight case where there was no attempt to disrupt, Judge Payne may not go with you on this. One, one thing that, that a judge said to me recently uh, comes to mind on this. It, it would be nice. I can understand it would be nice to be able to go kind of kneecap the other side on something. But you have to remember judges were on the other side of this argument in private practice and they see what you're doing and while it might sound like a good idea to me to kneecap the other side the judge doesn't really is not generally the ones i'm in front of are not interested in making life more difficult for one side or the other they're not interested in the tactical game playing and they see themselves in the shoes of the people in front of them so when they when they see that i'm trying to be too cute keeping somebody from getting something, 
my credibility is at risk when I make an argument like that. And I try to tell my co-counsel that too. We don't want to go in and ask for something like that. We want to be uh, professional. We want to be helpful. We don't want to fight the non-substantive fights like that. Well, a very substantive fight comes up in the Solis case. And <clears throat> I think you, you called it. Marking and the shifting presumptions are hard to follow and easy to screw up. And in this particular case, the party that filed for summary judgment not only lost summary judgment, but lost the defense in the same motion. Yeah, and, and, and that's just kind of how that works in marking. I mean, if you file it and you lose it, you, you don't just lose the motion and it goes to the jury, you lose the defense. So I, I hate marking issues. Uh, I just cut to the end. And, and fortunately, Judge Payne explains, here's what this means. There won't be a marking defense at trial. Your motion to strike the expert on the other side on this, on this point is moot. He didn't even deny it. He just said it's moot. So, so yeah, I, I try not to think too much about, about Arctic Cat and because it makes my head hurt. But this is a good example of the court saying, okay, here's where the facts slotted in on this one. Therefore, this flipper turns and this is out and this is out and this, this we don't have to worry about. And that's I all that's I a, want to think about on it. I think it's a great way to view, at, view it is that a lot of courts have set up to look at marking as a very mechanical process because it is complicated. The, the federal circuit has never been very clear about it. So if you just follow the paint by numbers, that's what you get. And it may be ugly, but that's what you get. That's it. That's it. Okay. Well, then we, we move on and we see some attempted trial scheduling. Um, I was going to go with shenanigans, but I guess that prejudges the, the motion, but we'll leave it at some maneuvering by a defendant to avoid a trial. How'd yeah. Um, the plaintiff files cases against three defendants. Judge uh, Gilstrap consolidates them for pretrial purposes, then stays one of them pending ex parte, sets everybody for trial. And then because one of them the case against Google is getting gummed down in some venue business. They get pulled out and their trial setting gets moved to uh, uh, later in the year while everybody else is still up for June. So everybody comes in and says, hey, wait, we want to we don't we want Google to go first and then we'll go after them. And judge will even go at the same time. We'll agree to consolidation. Uh, and Judge Gilstrap was not well pleased. Um, he said. With, in all three orders, he said, this motion appears to be nothing more than a veiled attempt to delay trial further. These two people, it makes sense to go forward with. We don't need to wait on the case with Google. He also looked at consolidation and said, you don't fit under consolidation under 299, so it has to be tried separately. But, but again, th this will give you a feel for what the court thinks about trying to constantly ask for stays. There's a footnote in every one that lists out all the stay requests that that party has previously filed. So um, again, it gives you a flavor of what practicing in front of Judge Gilstrap is like and, like, and what he considers important and what he considers not to be uh, the optimal strategy when it comes to prosecuting a case in his court. Well, it reminds me of a great conversation, I guess conversation, but we'll call it a conversation I had with Judge Davis when he was on the bench and I was at the podium and where he said, well, Mr. Stacey, you wouldn't be thinking about doing this, would you? 
I'm like, not anymore. He's like, well, then I think we've reached an agreement. <laughs> and it, I came to that realization that I may think I'm smart, but he's seen so much more than me. Yeah. Knows exactly what's there. I would have been better leading with, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. And it's like, well, that's a noble goal, but no. Yeah, we we were just about to pick a trial with uh, pick a jury with Judge Ward one time, and we were going to make a big deal out of the fact that our expert used to do work for Judge Ward, uh, or my co-counsel was going to. And right before we went out into the courtroom, he said, "Now I know nobody's going to mention that Mr. Green used to do some work for the court." And I look at David, and he looks at me, and we're like, "Well, we're not now," but uh, we were very fortunate that it came up outside the presence of the jury. Well, and that is something to remember in front of these judges that have seen so many of these cases. There aren't many original schemes that we can come up with as lawyers. Um, and they may be looking for, depending on how suspicious they are or how bad your reputation is, they may be looking for schemes. Well, and, and that was something that we, we always observed with Judge Ward because he had tried so many cases. He would be, you could see him looking towards something that he didn't think should be done but the reason he recognized that it might be out there is because he'd done it uh and and he as he would tell us he said that's a good strategy if your judge will let you do it i'm not going to let you do it but but that's it these judges who have seen it so many times they will see things that maybe as practitioners where we haven't been to trial as many times as the court has we don't see the danger coming up that the court sees i i, I wish reviewing courts could be as as um, understanding of the trial court's position to know here's what was happening and here's what was I here's what I was having to head off in real time. Judge Davis used to say, "I wish they could call balls and strikes real time." So <laughs> um, he also made some comment about you know no umpire has there in any game there are only one umpire they get three. Yeah. So. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll look at another one from Judge Payne, which actually provides a nice comparison of where he you know, went after an expert on some things and chose not to go after an expert on some other things. And that's the, the Fertiva case. Right. In, in the Fertiva case, uh, we've actually got a lot of rulings in that case recently. But this specific one, there were several, four different attacks on this one expert. And he said three were okay one attack was was merited and because he was doing something that did contradict the court's claim construction um and and these new opinions were untimely because they weren't they weren't previously uh disclosed well that's a useful opinion to look at to see what the party did and knowing that the court thought that wasn't appropriate to kind of internalize okay if i'm going to do this i don't want to do it this way i want to raise it this way uh, and again, for a long time, I never saw opinions where a court agreed with an argument that an expert was not applying the court's claim construction. This is the second one I've seen in the last couple of months where the court said, yeah, this isn't applying the claim construction. So it's very useful to read when a court says this, this, is, this is going beyond the pale because previously we just had orders saying, no, that wasn't enough. Well, then to show that not everything that comes out of Texas uh, is patent related. Got an interesting case related to the Umbrella Academy, which I think uh, it's a uh, series that you like to watch. And yeah, yeah. The one I thought I like was it. excellent myself. Um, uh, apparently your 
your spouse will watch it with you. Mine won't. So um, I get banished to the upstairs room. Yeah. But with this, um, an interesting, interesting view of a copyright infringement case based on a comic book, the Atkinson yeah. case. It's a case where, where uh, a guy had a comic book that had some characters and had a plot line. And when Umbrella Academy came out, he said, well, some of these characters look like they came from my creation and the plot line came from my creation as well. So the, the interesting thing about this order is this is the second motion to dismiss. The first was granted with leave to replead and copyright cases are different from other cases. There's a lot for the court to do in that case. The court has to make a lot of determinations about whether you've shown sufficient similarity for this. The, the term is striking similarity, whether you've got sufficient facts for uh, access. The court said, no, you don't have enough uh, facts for access. You're gonna have to show uh, substantial striking similarity. And here are the facts that you have for that and they're not enough to get you there. So again, in a traditional case, these are things for a jury to decide, but here you're fighting over them in front of the court. So it was very interesting to watch uh, Judge Schrader go through the different facts and say, this is not enough for striking similarity. You're, uh, to, to borrow Justice Scalia's phrase, you're, uh, which he didn't do, but I will, uh, you're looking out over a crowd and picking out your friends. You're saying, ah, this refers to President Kennedy's uh, assassination, and so does this. Well, that's not enough. You're referring to uh, attractive blonde women and geeky looking guys. Well, that's not exactly original. Um, so it, it was very um, uh, interesting seeing him explain things that work and things that don't work in the copyright context. Well, then we get a, a kind of a pair of cases that, that fit nicely together regarding invalidity contentions, motions to strike, in amended invalidity contentions, motions to amend. Uh, it's the Fertiva case and the Arigna case, our famous Arigna friend again. When you set those side by side, what do we really take away from, from contention amendments? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's great to set them side by side because we start with Fertiva. The uh, defendant amends without seeking leave. And then when they get challenged on it, they say, well, uh, we don't have to seek leave because it was an unexpected, it was after claim construction, it was unexpected or unforeseeable. And Judge Payne said, no, it wasn't, and explains all the reasons why it wasn't, and said there isn't good cause here, so you can't make these changes uh, without, without leave, uh, and, and found that there wasn't good cause. Interestingly, in this other case, the plaintiff is contending the same thing. They're saying we don't need to seek leave because the amendment would be proper as of right after the claim construction hearing, but it sought leave anyway and said we don't think we need to seek leave, but if the court finds that we do, here's the motion and here's our argument for good cause under the second section of the rule. And Judge Payne said, no, this is not uh, you don't get to do this as of right as a result of the claim construction, but I am convinced that you've shown good cause to grant leave to amend. Now, what were the outcomes different because the second one sought leave and the first one didn't? It's probably more complicated than that, but it certainly indicates that when in doubt, seek leave and make both those arguments. We think we we think the amendment's proper based on what the court did at claim construction, we also think it's proper as a result of a good cause under 36B. 
think this goes back to our our discussion about these judges have seen most of the schemes and tricks and uh, post justifications for actions. So you're better off just being upfront and in dealing with it. Yeah, there's there's a there's a school of thought that you slide things in and you you do things that way. And then there's a, and maybe that works better. I think that may work better in state court. In federal court, with judges that are paying attention and good lawyers, don't do it that way. Go ahead and give it your best shot, and and don't look like you're trying to pull a fast one. So our, our last case for for this cycle, Michael, is the uh, an unusual case on uh, an order focusing patent claims and how it applies across multiple cases. What are we supposed to take away from this one? Well, we don't have a lot of consolidated cases anymore uh, since the AIA. Before the AIA, I used to run numbers and the average number of defendants within a case was about eight, six to eight. For a while it was 10. That was the average number of, of what we would now call products or processes within a case. Well, now those are separate. They get consolidated together, but, but uh, for pretrial, as happened here, but because venue is also more difficult, they now go all over the country. So we see much fewer consolidated cases. Well, in this case, we did have several cases consolidated and the plaintiff said, well, judge, you've given us, we've limited the number of asserted claims and the number of prior art references, but we can't agree on whether that is across all cases or is that in each case? And he said, it, that's in each case. So that they're clear now, okay, if, if we've got 10 prior art references, each of the defendants will be able to assert those 10 prior art references. Uh, but he reminded people that um, that's a minimum threshold. Use your best efforts to continue to narrow the claims, references, and defensive theories as much as, as you can. Judge Gilstrap in the last couple of years has at times tried to get people to do that narrowing earlier by prohibiting it being done later without leave of court, but that seems to have fallen by the wayside and any narrowing at any stage, I mean, as long as it doesn't look like you're engaged, engaging in some uh, uh, game playing, uh, narrowing at any stage is a good thing. Uh, and the court wants you at all times to be looking at ways to, uh, to narrow the case and streamline the case. And of course that saves everybody a lot of money when you can do it. What I fear in this one, somebody's going to read that and say, oh, we've got 10 defendants. We can each work with each other and find 10 different pieces of prior art. And I guess while that may, uh, well, it may satisfy the written order, it won't satisfy the spirit. Right. And that's another trick trick that Gilstrap has seen, and he may find you on the backside with an estoppel problem. Right, right. And and that was something Judge Gilstrap said on a judicial panel in Waco a couple of weeks ago. He pointed out that we have rules and the court will come up with rules and procedures. But he said, trial lawyers are the most creative people on the planet. And any rule he comes up with, people are going to find a way to work around. And he wasn't saying that in a bad sense. It's just that if you want to know why a particular rule may change every two or three or five years. It's because people have found ways to manipulate it and get around it that is damaging the intent enough that he has to go back and he has to tweak it again and say, well, okay, nice try, uh, but let's not do that. Let's, let's do it this way. 
So that you, I think you're absolutely right. It may may come out differently. Well, Michael, thank you. Um, and I, I think I'll I'll sum up with maybe the the most important thing to understand about Texas is there's nothing that interesting coming out of the Northern District or Southern District. Not. not Didn't make you say it. I said not it. in the patent context. <laughs> There's lots of interesting stuff coming out of Dallas and Houston, but uh, not not often in the patent context. Don't tell Judge Lynn I said that. I think she knows what's on her docket these days compared to a few years ago. So that's true. Well, and luckily, I don't have to tell her this is being recorded. So, <laughs> Michael, thank you once again. All right. Thank you. Have a good week. Take care.